Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Sometimes I like to go to Starbucks to study. And so yesterday I was there. And sometimes I sit in Starbucks and I can study there somewhere else. And one time I was sitting there and um, I didn't even know until I kind of stood up and started walking around. There was a, a big, a, a large table of people who had some disabilities and they were kind of loud. And so sometimes I could just be oblivious to everything that's happening in there. I don't really know what's happening. All I, I mean, for like maybe four or five hours, I'm just completely focused in on what I'm doing. So if, if you've seen me in there and I haven't said hi, sorry, it's probably why, okay? Yesterday, though, when I was sitting there, I started listening and hearing people coughing And then when someone would sneeze, I would look around. And you know what? I was a lot more alert to what was happening around me. And in fact, I was thinking yesterday as as I was sitting there, I was like, people are coughing a lot more than I remember them coughing. Maybe I don't want to be sitting here in Starbucks. But actually, I realized, I think part of the issue was, or the problem was, is that actually I was now alert to the dangers that were around me. When, When we know there's a problem... When we are in danger, we are therefore alert to what's happening around us. In our text, we find the disciples were not alert. They were oblivious to the the spiritual realities around them. And we, we see this back in Mark 13, where they're like, look at the temple. It's such a beautiful building. And Jesus says, actually, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen. And let me actually open your perception to what God is doing. Judas is is loving money. He's planning to betray Jesus. The disciples, they were fighting over who was the greatest. Jesus tells the ten and Peter, he says, listen, you guys are going to fall away. And they said, no, no, we're fine, Lord. So all these these people around Jesus are just blind and, and asleep to the spiritual realities around them. And so we looked last week at two qualities of a spirit controlled Person. And today we will look at the third quality. The first quality, just a review of a spirit-controlled person, was a spirit-controlled person is alert to spiritual realities. Is alert to spiritual realities. Starting in Mark 13, Jesus started warning these, these men to not be asleep to the spiritual temptations that are coming their way and to be alert to what God is doing. In fact, you can look back in Mark 13. Look at verse 5. Jesus warns them there. He says, guys, listen, see that no one leads you astray. If you look at Mark 13, 9, he says, be on your guard. If you look down in verse 34, he says, um, he said, verse, uh, sorry, 33, he says, be on your guard. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. So he's prepping these guys for all these things that are going to happen. Then they go into the garden and he says, guys, in verse 34 of Mark 14, Mark 14, 34, he says, remain here and watch. So again, this idea of being alert. And then he concludes there in Mark 14, 38, Jesus rebukes the disciples for not watching. And he says to them, Mark 14, 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus identified the problem here of of why they're not watching, why they're not spiritually alert. And it was found there at the end of verse 38, because they were not 
under the power of the Holy Spirit. They remained under the power of their own flesh, following the direction of their own sinful hearts. In order for us to be spiritually alert to what God is doing in our world and to the temptations that are coming our way from Satan, we must be under the power of the Holy Spirit. We must submit our our hearts to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot going on in our world, isn't there? People uh, are watching the news. They're looking at their Twitter accounts. And you might ask people, are you alert to what's going on? And people might say, yeah, I'm watching the news all the time. For some people that wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is they check the coronavirus update. And then they do that every 10 minutes throughout the whole day. Don't they do that, right? And you might, they might say, well, I'm alert to what's happening. But Jesus here is speaking about spiritual alertness. And he was speaking to the spiritual alertness that can see beyond the hype and the terror. And those are kind of the two extremes you see in this world. You get the hype. Sometimes it's hard to know what's hype and what's not. You have the terror. Sometimes it's hard to know what's terror and what's not. But both those things are things that are happening. And, but Jesus is doing something through those things, beyond those things. And a spirit-controlled person perceives, listen, there's something taking place in this world behind the scenes of the material world. God is doing something. And actually, Satan is opposing God. And actually, I'm his target. I'm the target of Satan for temptation. And so it's having this spiritual perception perception because you are submitted to the Holy Spirit. And the second quality of a spirit-controlled person was this is a person who prays with dependence on God. He prays in dependence. I mean, imagine this event here in, in Mark 14. They're in the garden. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is on the ground. He's praying. He's crying out in anguish. And remember, why is he in such anguish? Well, only in a few hours he will face the full wrath for sin, for the sins of the world. Look down in verse 35. And this is kind of where we're going to start in our text and then go through here the rest of this hour. Mark 14, 35 says, And going a little further... He fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And then this is his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then notice how he ends it. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Remember our text says he prayed this over and over. What we see in this prayer is this incredible spiritual wrestling match taking place in the heart of of Jesus. Now, we didn't dismiss Junior Church today because we don't have it. So in the service, I have Ivan, my five-year-old. Hi, Ivan. How you doing, buddy? He's like, what? This is your first time to sit in the service. This is great. I love to wrestle with Ivan. And, you know, I got about 100 pounds on him. Plus. <laughs> so I pretty much beat him every time. And we still enjoy doing that. It's kind of fun to do that. And the conclusion of every wrestling match is what? I win. Prayer is like a wrestling match. And the conclusion of every prayer really should be surrender to the Lord. And Jesus is a great example of what it looks like to be controlled by the Holy Spirit in prayer. Some of us have 
face the stress of what's going on. Maybe you listen to the news too much and you felt the stress of that. You can feel overwhelmed by that. And, and some of it's maybe the worry of what's going to happen with the, the virus. Maybe some of it's even the economy. So you have all those things kind of swirling through your mind. But I want you to recognize Jesus as our example here. He's our high priest who prays for us, but also he's our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, what Jesus is facing right here is the most stressful, most physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting 12 hours that anyone has ever been through. Hebrews 4.15 says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness because we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. And how did Jesus handle his stress? What did he do? He goes to the Lord in prayer. He wrestled with how he felt in his humanity, with what he knew to be true about his father. You're my Abba. You love me. You can do all things with the conclusion of surrender. Not what I will, but what you will. Notice the third quality of a spirit-controlled person is this is a person who acts in faith, who acts in faith. Jesus spent hours, potentially hours there in the garden, praying, wrestling with his father through, through what was about to happen. And the text shows us how Jesus went from, from crying in prayer in this anguish to responding in courage and confidence. I mean, you see him laying on the ground, crying out, to standing up and confidently moving into this very difficult time of suffering. How is it possible that Jesus transitioned from that to courage? How is that possible that happened? Well, Jesus had faith. Now, you might think to yourself, what is that? He had faith? What does that mean? Well, what is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is knowing something is true and then submitting your heart and life to that truth. It's knowing something is true and then submitting your heart and life to that truth. So the CDC has told us that, that the sickness, this coronavirus, could actually cause us to um, get sick and some to die. And so they say you should wash your hands. Now, do you believe you should wash your hands? Do you believe you should do that? Now, I bet if I took a poll in here that almost everyone would say you should wash your hands. Like definitely if you, after you go to the bathroom. But even in light of the coronavirus, right? So do you really believe that? Well, there's a difference between knowing it's true. Like, oh, yeah, CDC says this. We should do this. Saying, I know that's true. There's a difference between that and actually believing it through action, right? Because if you really believe it, then what will you do? You'll wash your hands. Now, we won't take a poll in here about how many people have washed their hands and who have not. But see, faith in the scripture is active faith. It's not just knowing something. It's saying, I know this is true, and therefore I submit myself to that. And that's Jesus here. Jesus knows the truth about his father, and he submits himself to his father's, to his father's will. In the spiritual realm, we have these truths of God's word and who God is. And we are called by faith to submit our hearts and our lives to that. So how did Jesus do that? Well, he was living out his faith and, con and courage and confidence in his father. And first notice the faith of Jesus is faith in his father's sovereign work. It's faith in his sovereign work. 
Look at verse 35, the very end of the verse. How does Jesus conclude his prayers that he has to his father? Not my will, but your will be done. In that prayer, we see Jesus yield to his father's sovereign plan. Look down in verse 41. You can see that Jesus uses, uh, the Bible says that, Verse 41, that he came a third time and he said to his disciples, saw them sleeping. And he responds to them. He says, are you sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. So this is an hour designated by God in his sovereign plan. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then notice how he just says, it says, arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at Hand. So you see Jesus shift from this crying and praying to standing in courage. Do you remember being a child and ever having a time where you got disconnected from your family? Maybe you got lost somewhere. Do you ever have that happen to you? And the, the terror that, that overcomes you as a child? How many of you heard the be nice story in here? Anyone heard that? Oh boy, this is the first for this church. This is going to be a lot of fun. When I was about three years old, we lived in normal Illinois. I had four brothers and sisters. And we went to the mall one day. I've actually been back to that mall and seen it. It's kind of cool to have that memory, I guess. But anyways, went back to the mall, and uh, we were shopping around. And at some point, of course, I was three or four. I don't remember what happened. But at some point, I got disconnected from my family. Maybe I was looking at a toy or something. You know, as a kid, you have these memories of things. But then you realize when you grow up, maybe they're not all completely accurate. But anyways, so... I, I, I was looking at something and I turn around and my family is not there. So you have this dread of like, you're not in control and your parents aren't there and you don't know what's going to happen. And so I started to cry and someone found me and brought me to the desk. And back then in the malls, in the middle of the mall, they had this guy that would stand there and he had a microphone and he would talk like this. You know, he could make announcements to people. I don't see that anymore in the mall. But anyways, so someone took me to that. And this guy leans over and he says, had the microphone. And he goes, hey, little boy, what's your name? Of course, I'm bawling my eyes out. And I'm trying to say this as a three-year-old, my name. And so I say, Ben Ice. And I say, be nice. And he says, well, I'll be nice to you, little boy. Just what's your name? And so I said, be nice. And so that happened quite a bit. And eventually... My parents came up, they found me, we hugged, and they asked the guy, they said, what is this, what is this boy's name? And, and he said, you know, my parents said, well, his name is Ben Ice. And he said, oh, I kept asking him, he kept saying, be nice and crying. So there's my be nice story. So now you know that story. True story there. So my parents did not intend to name me that, be nice, but it happened. So now I'm, now that's why my email address is pastorbenice at gmail.com, okay? Or you could also spell it Pastor Ben Ice, either way. But, you know, when you're a child and you get lost, you fear that, that dread, that loneliness, the, the, really the security of your, of your family, your parents um, having control and keeping you safe is gone. And, and there's a sense where that in our, in our text here, you kind of sense this from the people that are around Jesus. They have this, this terror, this, this fear. But Jesus, he comes to his father and he recognizes he's the one in charge. He actually comes to him in prayer. And Jesus is about to face the blow of hurt and rejection and pain and judgment. And he cries out to his father and he steps forward in confidence. And what was his confidence in? It was that fact that his father was sovereignly working. He says in verse 41, the hour has come. He uses the word 
man or son of man. And that's really a designation. That's a messianic title speaking of uh, the prophetic nature of Jesus work. So we see this faith that, that God has sovereignly planned and Jesus is holding on to that. And Jesus ha- has had this perspective because he had submitted his heart to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 43. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Notice the hearts and actions of the others who are controlled by their own flesh. Judas was leading this mass of people. Some scholars look at the language that that the Gospel of John uses, and they conclude that there was some Roman soldiers there as as well as the temple soldiers. And they conclude also there could have been up to 600 soldiers that were there. So this wasn't just a couple people. This was a mass of people, like a small army coming after Jesus. And think of the shock of the disciples, the other 11, as they see Judas leading this mass of people. Here's the betrayer coming to arrest Jesus. And look at verse 44. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. What a kiss of betrayal. Verse 46, and they laid hands on him and notice they seized him. So this is here, the beginning of the the suffering that was prophesied. And consider how the disciples responded, and particularly Peter, especially as you consider this verse all the way down to the very end of, of verse 72. You see the faithfulness of Jesus, and you see the faithlessness of Peter. And so look at verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword. John 18, 10 records that this was Peter. So Peter takes his sword and the Bible says he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, on the face of it, you see this. It might look like Peter was acting with courage. He was defending the Lord Jesus. But but remember, Peter is controlled by his flesh and his feelings. So so this is actually a self-confident boost of humanistic heroism. This is Peter being rash, acting in violence outside of the will of God. In fact, we know this because if you go to other gospels, particularly Matthew chapter 26, Jesus rebukes Peter. Remember what he says? He says, put your sword away, Peter. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Peter here is trusting his own bravado. Jesus says, my father actually has the ability to wipe out everyone here. All I got to do is ask it. So the question then is this. Why didn't Jesus do that? Why didn't Jesus call down the angels and do that? What was motivating Jesus? Well, it was the will of a sovereign father. Verse 54, he said that. But now, this is actually Matthew, but Matthew 26, 54, he says, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. So he's saying, this is my father's plan, Peter. 
I'm, I'm doing this because this is what my father wills. And look down at Mark 14, 48. He turned to the religious leaders. Here are, are men controlled by their own jealousy and anger. In verse 48, Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. And then notice the end of this, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Again, Jesus concludes with this commitment to following his father's will. Jesus was in submission to the Holy Spirit and therefore the will of the father as revealed in the scripture controlled him and his, his actions. But the disciples were following their own heart, their own feelings, and therefore they were controlled by fear. In fact, notice that in verse 50. And they, the disciples, all left him and fled. Why did they do that? They were afraid. In fact, verse 51, a young man followed after him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's kind of an odd story to be in there, kind of thrown in there. This is only in the Gospel of Mark. Many people speculate that this was John Mark, the one who wrote this, the, the Gospel of Mark. Um, he would have been a teenager at this time. The disciples and Jesus would have just finished a meal, potentially in the house uh, of John Mark, his mother's house there. And so that's possible. And so it could be that it was late in the middle of the night, Jesus and the disciples slip out. You know, he's sleeping and he's sleeping. They didn't have pajamas back then, right? He just was sleeping in his linen cloth and he gets up and he follows Jesus out and he finds himself out here. They, the soldiers saw him, they grab him and he flees away naked. This is kind of embarrassing. But actually, you know what the most embarrassing thing is? He rejected the Lord too. So this is kind of an eyewitness account of, of a person in humility saying, I, this person rejected the Lord too. And it potentially could be Mark here that we really don't have any way to know. We just theorize that. But why did Peter, this young man, and the ten disciples flee? They were afraid. They were afraid to die. They, they knew what was going to happen to Jesus. They were going to take him. They were going to kill him. This was rigged. And they didn't want to be part of that. And when your heart follows if your own sinful desires, like Peter, fear can overcome your heart and your soul. It actually can have a power that's over you that's very controlling. It caused Peter, fear caused Peter to fly and to lie and to deny. There you go. You like that, Ryan? Fear can be such a controlling power, though, can it, over you? If you watch the news each day, there are a lot of things going on. And there are people all around our country, maybe in this room, you're just... You're so scared about what's going to happen. And fear can overwhelm us. It can cloud our thinking. It can cause us to be self-centered, mean, and sinful. I mean, just as an example, think about, think about the toilet paper. Isn't that a crazy thing? Like, all oh, this toilet paper is gone. Does anybody in here need some toilet paper, by the way? We're doing donations. No. But if you do, we can try to help you out. But think about that. People made a mad rush on toilet paper. I don't really know why. I did hear at one point someone said that, that a lot of the toilet paper is produced in China, you know. But actually, research, uh, I researched it and found out that actually only 10% of our toilet paper is imported. And it's, and it's from Mexico and Canada, not even from America. So we actually have plenty of toilet paper in America. Why are people going out and getting toilet paper? 
I don't know. But I think a lot of it's based on what? Fear. In fact, you watch those videos online of these people that are fighting over toilet paper. Have you seen that? Like these two ladies that are cat fighting, pulling each other's hair. After something that is used in the bathroom called toilet paper. Like, it's just crazy to think about. Fear, though, it can cause us to do some crazy things. And sinful fear comes from a a heart that is controlled by our human emotion, our own self-centered thinking. So what's the opposite of that? that? What should our heart be controlled by? Should be controlled by the Holy Spirit. When our hearts are submitting to the Holy Spirit, our confidence, our faith is in God. He is on the throne. All things are under his sovereign plan. And, and that doesn't mean, therefore, you act foolishly. Oh, I don't mind. If I get sick, it's all going to be okay. That's dumb. That's actually not a good application to this. It's actually the exact opposite. It means you actually respond in self-control, in wisdom, in love. Sinful fear, though, can cause us to actually reject God, reject his love for us. And most, probably above all else, we reject his sovereignty over us. Life is out of control. And therefore, I must fear sometimes how we can be tricked in our thinking. So what does the scripture tell us to do? What should you do when you're afraid? Does anybody know the answer to that question? Pray. What should I do when I'm afraid? Actually, there are some kids in here who just memorized this verse a couple weeks ago. What should I do when I'm afraid? It's in Psalm 56. Go ahead. Say it out loud. Okay. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? The psalmist trusted God when he was afraid. And here is Jesus trusting the Father. The Father is sovereign over all. And when we're afraid, we need to turn to him and trust in him. And what was the fear of the disciples here? They feared death. What does it mean to trust God in the face of potential death? I mean, that's what a lot of people are afraid of, right? What's, how is this going to affect our country? What's going to happen to me? Well, if you fear death and faith in God means you trust God can save you from eternal death, through the work of his son to eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5, 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. So if you believe in Jesus Christ and his work for us, father sent him to do a work on earth. He says, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So if you're in here today and you're uncertain about where you're going to spend eternity. You're, you're afraid of death. Let me encourage you to go to do Jesus Christ and trust in him. He promises to give you the gift of life. He can forgive your sins. He can give you eternal life. And if, if, you're, not, if, you're, if you're without Christ, submit your will to him. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. And if you're a believer in here, let me encourage you in this. That you can trust the promise of Jesus that we have passed from life, from death to life because of him, because of the son. So we will not come under judgment. And the the next point, the next way Jesus trusted his father was that he trusted that his father triumphantly works. 
So first he trusts that God sovereignly works. Now he trusts here that this father triumphantly works. Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So the religious leaders and the soldiers took Jesus. Other gospels tell us it was the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And so they have a trial for Jesus. This is an illegal trial. The trial was taking place in the middle of night. That was actually against the Jewish laws. Even the location of this trial was in an illegal place. The charges weren't even clear against them. In fact, they're trying to come up with charges at the beginning of the trial here. But they couldn't even agree. The witnesses couldn't even agree with each other. And so, so think of the, the fear of these religious leaders to break their own laws, to bring Jesus to trial. Because, because why? They're jealous of Jesus. They're afraid of his, of his influence. Think of the fear that Peter has to hide and, in the corner and peer in. But eventually we'll see that he lies. Look at verse 54. Peter followed at a distance. He's afraid. Right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. So he's trying to be incognito there, trying to blend in with everybody there. Verse 55, and the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. The accusation against Jesus and the accusations against him didn't match up. The witnesses didn't agree. But kind of the key accusation here is that he would destroy the temple. Now, did Jesus ever say that? Did Jesus ever say he was going to destroy the temple? No, that's not, that's not true. That's a tricky thing here with, with accusations by people like this that are trying to, to destroy someone else. Their goal was to destroy Jesus. So, th- so they, they took what they could and they twisted it to conform to their narrative. In fact, listen to what Jesus actually said in John 2.19. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, that sounds a lot similar to what they said. But actually, listen to what he said. Destroy this temple. He didn't say he was going to destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple. And actually, context is real important because what was he talking about? His own body. He was saying, destroy this temple, which ironically, they were doing at that moment. They're about to go into a time of of torturing him. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will resurrect. I will raise it up. So... At some point, people either misunderstood this or they intentionally misrepresented this and they took this to fit their narrative that Jesus was a person who wanted to destroy Israel and not save it. And this is important to recognize for two reasons. One is, one is this is typically how false accusations work. Someone hears something, word spreads, and what's, what's more important than the truth is the destruction of that person. So they'll take something they said and they'll twist it to support their narrative of what they have. You ever face something like that? That's difficult to face, isn't it? But that, that's under, it's good to understand the nature of accusations. And the second, the reason is important, because notice how Jesus responded. When, when you're falsely accused with something and someone twists things, how do you want to respond to that? 
But look how Jesus responded in verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? What did Jesus say? Verse 61. He remained silent with no answer. The answer to the attacks is not always to say nothing. It's not necessarily that's what he's saying here. You should never respond to any kind of attacks. But it's that you should respond in a spirit-controlled way. That's what we see from Jesus here. And how was Jesus able to be calm and measured and steady? Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? Just flip over there quickly. How was Jesus able to respond under these false accusations? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Peter, later in his life, learns these lessons. And he passes them on in this letter here to the churches. And he reflects on what Christ did and how he suffered, how he responded. And he says, listen, you are facing suffering. You should respond in the same way. And in verse 21, he says, for 1 Peter 2, 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he was innocent of all charges, and when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was able to respond that way because he was living what he believed. And what was that? My father is the righteous judge. He knows the truth. And even more than that, He actually is working out his plan, and I know what's going to happen. He says he entrusted himself to him who who judges justly. So you think about Jesus was in that garden. He over and over and over, he prayed in submission to his father, not what I will, but what you will. And then now he's suffering. And what's he doing over and over? He says he continued. He continually trusts himself. You're the sovereign. You're the righteous one. I'm trusting myself to you. And his faith was that his father triumphantly works. God wins in the end. He always does. So entrust yourself to the victor, to the Lord. Go back to Mark chapter 14. And notice how the high priest made a claim about Jesus. And and Jesus looked beyond the pain of what was about to happen to the triumph ahead. Verse 61, Mark 14, 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now let's just pause right there and and just recognize this amazing statement the high priest makes. He stated the reality of who Jesus was. He's the Messiah and he's also God. He's the son of the blessed. And in verse 62, Jesus said, I am. Jesus agrees And then he emphatically claims that by quoting two Old Testament prophecies. Verse 61, he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That's a quote from Psalm 101. 
110 verse 1. That's a messianic psalm. So he's saying, I am the king. And then he says, in coming with the clouds of heaven. That's a quote from Daniel 7, 13, which speaks about God coming as a judge to the earth. So I am God. So I am the Messiah king. And yes, I am God himself. And the high priest, he knew exactly what Jesus was saying there. And so you can see what he does in verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and equal with God. So they charged him with blasphemy and they voted to put him to death. And then in verse 65, you see them begin to torture Jesus. And some began, verse 65, they began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him and say to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. How could Jesus face all of this pain with such peace? Well, he had faith that his father was triumphantly going to work. In fact, you even see that in his statement where he says, yes, I am. And he says, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power. That's in the future coming in the clouds of heaven. That's in the future. He looked to the future triumphal work of, of Christ. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross because his eyes were, were fixed beyond the suffering. His eyes were fixed to the glory to come. In fact, listen to this verse, Hebrews 12, one and two. It says, Run the race with endurance. You know this verse, right? Run the race with endurance. Verse two, two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. I was looking at different translations and just trying to understand how different people translate different words. And I saw a paraphrase version that I was, I looked at it, I thought, that's not really a great verse to memorize or a great version to memorize, but it's a really good one to read. And I thought I'd read it for you. Hebrews 12, 2. And this is how they paraphrase that idea that Jesus looked beyond the suffering to the glory to come. This says, keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished his race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside of God. Jesus could put up with anything. How is that possible? Because his faith looked beyond the suffering and it looked to the glory to come when he would be with his father in perfect fellowship and he would be Lord of all. You know, when we, when we face difficulties, and again, we're not even certain exactly what those difficulties might be. We face those. Sometimes they're physical sufferings that take place. Sometimes they're relational suffering. Sometimes you have people who, who accuse you of things. It, it could be a financial suffering or loss. We, we, though, no matter what the suffering is, we should follow the example of Jesus Christ here. In the power of the Spirit, he submitted his life to his Father and to his Father's will, recognizing his Father would triumph. And I think no matter what happens in the next couple of weeks, 
it's good for us to recognize that God is sovereign. He's on the throne and he will win. In fact, he can take any tragedy. He can take the worst tragedy and he can actually turn it around into something good, something for his glory. Most importantly for us as his children, if you're a child of God, that living for Christ on this earth, even though it's sometimes difficult, is actually, is actually very enjoyable. Living for Christ now is great, but most importantly, living with him forever is gain. And we look forward to that. Peter says, as I read this morning, don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And then he said the very end of that section, he says, listen, we need to trust our soul to him, our creator. You know, epidemics and sicknesses like this are something that have actually happened throughout the history of mankind. It's actually started after the fall of, of man and that sin and death and disease, all those things have been a result of that. I was reading about an epidemic that took place in 1964, really in 19, or I'm sorry, not 19, 1864. So really in the 1860s, this is in New York City. A lot of immigrants were coming in from, from Ireland. The city at the time was about 200,000 people. The, the city was booming. Cholera, though, was an epidemic that was sweeping through the city. And it was interesting. I, I saw this like poster online that was an old poster um, that was people were trying to um, uh, spread like the news about what was happening. And it was really particularly about the New York City Board of Health. They were quarantining, quarantining people on ships, which I was like, this is all very interesting. They were quarantining people on ships that were coming in that had cholera. But then they weren't telling the people in the city that there were people amongst them that had cholera. And so they couldn't quarantine the people in the city. The point is people were dying and they, some people didn't know why. Some people did know why. Robert Lowry, though, was a pastor in Hanson Place Baptist Church in Brooklyn. In one afternoon in July of 1864, the weather was hot in Brooklyn. It was oppressive. And he was thinking through all these people in his church, some who had died, some who couldn't come because they were not able to come because of the sickness. And he was just thinking about, you know, are we going to be able to gather again? In fact, when I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, I think a lot of churches are asking themselves the, that, the question, when are we going to gather again? When, when are we all going to get back together? And so he started asking himself this question as he sat on his porch at his, at his house. He was exhausted. He had, had been going out and ministering to people. He was exhausted. He was tired. And he thought, when are we going to be able to gather again? And a song came to his, his mind. Anyone know what the song was? It was, we will gather at the river. How many know that song? Anyone know that song? Oh, there you go. We got some people that know that song. Shall we gather at the river is actually what it is. Shall we gather at the river? Where bright angels' feet have trod. And he started, as he sat there and started thinking through, what's going to happen with our church? Are we going to be able to gather? He started writing the words of this song. With its crystal tides forever flowing by the throne of God. Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. What lifted the spirits of this pastor was this thought of, you know, I don't know what's going to happen right now, but there will be a time when all the saints will gather by the river that flows from the throne of God. As we walk through these next few weeks, I think it's important for us to remember as as Christians, we must submit our hearts to the Holy Spirit. 
right? The disciples were so afraid. Fear controlled them. It caused them to do things. We're going to see next week Peter denying the Lord, lying about his fellowship with the Lord, and then running from the Lord. And when we are depending upon the Holy Spirit, we're, we're alert to God's work around us, to really those, and particularly Satan, who's opposing that work. We're depending on him in prayer. We pray for our country. We're praying for our city. We pray for each other. And then we act in faith. We act in faith, trusting that God is the one who sovereignly is working all these things out. And he's going to be triumphal in the end. And next week, we'll look at the last point, if we're able to gather next week, that he had faith that his father is compassionately working. His father is compassionately working. How many know the song, We Shall Gather the River? Raise your hand. I'm going to see that. Ooh, it looks like a lot of people in here know it. I think I'm going to try to sing it with us here, okay? Didn't plan on this, but I thought this is a great way to end, and then we'll end with our song. Let's see if I can get the right note. Shall we gather at the river Where bright angels' feet have trod With its crystal tides forever Flowing by the throne of God. I guess you don't know the words, do you? But you know this last one. Yes, we will gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. Yes, we will gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river. That flows by the throne of God. There's our hope. There's what we're looking to. We're looking to the hope that's found in Christ. Our time that we can be with him forever. Let's pray to the Lord. We come to the Lord in faith. Trusting that he, our father, sovereignly works. He triumphantly works. And we entrust our hearts, our souls to him. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our country right now, and I do pray you'll spare us. Spare us from the potential devastation this virus could have. I pray that, that in your kindness you would do that. We would really say thank you for that. But God, most importantly, above all else, would your, would your will be done? Pray that, God, you will draw people to yourself. May this be a time when people, uh, though they are afraid, will then look to you. And we'll recognize that they have a greater need, and that is they need the Lord and Savior to cleanse them of their sins. They need to be rescued by the life of Christ. And so, God, I pray this will be a great turning for our country to you. I pray for our city. May we, as, as believers in the city, be a light to our city, a light of love. And I pray for each member in this church here, some who are joining us over the Internet, and I pray for each one of them that you will you'll protect them from the fear of, of death, from the fear of what might happen. I pray that they will be in submission to the Holy Spirit and submit their life to you as our sovereign Lord. We, we trust our lives to you and trust that, God, we know that you always win. You can take the worst things and you can make them into the best things. In fact, you did that with, with Jesus, right, with with people who betrayed him, people who beat him, and you took that terrible thing, those terrible events, and you turned them into the redemption of our lives and our souls. 
And you can do that even today in an amazing way. And so, God, we look in faith to you in that. We entrust our hearts and our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.